Please pray with me. Father, we pray simply that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your most holy word, that you would bring glory to yourself as you continue to change us by the power of your spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you to open your Bible with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 14. And as you do, I would challenge you to be careful. To be careful with what you allow to grow in your heart or in your soul. Because sin is like an invasive species, and it can lead to consequences that you never intend. Here are just a few examples from the natural world of the unintended cost and consequence when an invasive species invades. In 1884, a farmer visiting the Cotton States Exposition in Louisiana brought back a few Venezuelan water hyacinths to decorate the fountain outside of his home in Florida. Today, the aggressive purple flowers choke 126,000 acres of waterway. Kudzu is a Japanese vine that was imported in 1876 to prevent erosion. It is currently spreading throughout the southern United States and expanding at a rate of 150,000 acres every single year. The European rabbit, introduced to Australia in 1859, has reached a population of over 200 million, necessitating the construction of a 2,000-mile-long rabbit-proof fence just to protect the wholesale destruction of farmlands. In 2011, the sighting of a single Asian carp in Lake Michigan had everyone from the National Wildlife Federation to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers close to panic. Originally imported to control the spread of algae in Arkansas fish farms, these giant carp escaped into the Mississippi River, and they began to make their way steadily northward after the Great Flood. They now threaten to crowd out smaller fish and destroy the local fishing industry. This happened, of course, long after the sea lamprey invasion of the 1920s and the 1930s devastated the Great Lakes trout catch by 98% by the early 1960s. In the United States alone, containment costs of invasive species were estimated at $138 billion annually in the year 2015. That cost is raised to $150 to $200 billion every single year today, all because of invasive species in the natural world. Now, we know that in the natural world, the cost is high. But let me tell you, in the spiritual world, the cost is even higher. It's even higher than money. The cost of letting sin run loose in your life is profound. And the same can be true of the cost of letting sin run loose in the church as well. Let me illustrate. 
because of some non-biblical ideas that entered the church in Europe in the early 1900s. European denominations began to deny the divinity of Jesus Christ in wholesale form. It was an invasive species of beliefs that prompted the German Christians to edit the Bible and make it conform to the ideals of the Nazi Reich in the 1920s and 1930s. And Christians, of all people, Christians, churches, supported that Reich and their mission. It was errant beliefs that ran rampant through the American church that propelled many of the historic mainline denominations to liberalize the Bible's teaching on sin, on the atonement, on the miracles, on human sexuality, and on the afterlife in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, resulting in the incredible decline of historic denominations in our country today. And when this happens, the grace of God that was so powerfully expressed through the Lord Jesus Christ and applied to the lives of people appears to have been applied in vain, Paul says. When people don't live like God clearly calls them to, it appears that that grace has been applied in vain, it says in 2 Corinthians 5 and 6. And this is what Paul is concerned about as we turn our attention to the second half of 2 Corinthians 6 as well. And so I want to ask you to follow with me as we read 2 Corinthians Chapter 6, verse 14 and on. This is what Paul says. He says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty." Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Here we find a very clear command that is due to an abiding and loving reality. And the command very clearly stated in verse 14 is this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. To be yoked means to be tethered to or connected. And the picture, of course, is a picture of horses or oxen in a field that are bound together for the sake of their work. They have a leather strap or a wooden harness that connects the two animals together, which is called a yoke. And the reason why they're connected is that when they are, they are able to harness 
a greater strength to pull the cart or to pull the plow that they're pulling. The strength of two together is greater than the strength of one on its own. The strength of two together is greater than the strength of two that are disconnected but still pulling the same thing. But what happens when two animals are unequally yoked? When one horse is a lot bigger than the other one? (laughs) Or one ox decides to pull its weight and the other one is just a little bit lazy on that day? Well, the first animal ends up having a much, much harder time. Not just harder as if it was pulling, then both were pulling together, but even harder, a harder time than it would have if it was pulling the cart on its own. Because now, not only does that one animal have to pull the cart, but it also has to pull the other animal along with it. And so Paul applies this somehow to humans and to our human relationship. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Do not be tethered to them. But why? And in what areas is he referring to? Many of us have probably heard this Bible passage preached before in a way that is used to address two major relational issues that we have in life. The first one being business relationships or contractual relationships. And the second one being the most intimate of relationships being our marriages. And the logic goes something like this. Don't enter into those types of long-term relationships with people who aren't Christians because they have different goals and desires than you do. And in doing so, your own faithfulness to God will come under threat. And although the Bible certainly points us to the reality that Christians should look to marry other Christians, and when you do, you have an opportunity to reflect the wonderful mysteries of God in the gospel. That's what Ephesians 5 teaches us. And although that certainly could be one of the applications of this passage, when we take a step back and we look at the larger context, it seems as if Paul has a different application in mind. Throughout the entire letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul is defending himself from those who claimed that he was a false apostle. And he defended himself not just for the sake of his own reputation, he defended himself for the sake of the reputation of the gospel itself. There were those who were saying, well, the apostle is weak, he's been persecuted, he has been one who has not been successful by any human measure in this world, and therefore, clearly what he's saying is not true. But Paul is defending himself from the claim, saying, in my weakness, God's power is great. And when you reject the message of this apostle, you reject the very power of God as it is applied to your life. In chapter 5, he had just told them about the magnificence of the grace of God to forgive sins through the Lord Jesus. In chapter 6, he encourages them to endure in that grace and to open their hearts to God and open their hearts to him as he preaches the message of this gospel. But some remained who hadn't opened their hearts. They were associated with the church, but they believed a different gospel 
They rejected Paul and they rejected his message and they were attempting to persuade others to do the same. And Paul calls them unbelievers. Unbelievers who are in the church. And this is the type of yoking or relationship that he's speaking about. He's worried about a corruption of belief from the inside. He's worried about an invasive species. And so he says, do not be yoked to them. Now let's pause for a second and take a step back and provide a little bit of texture and a little bit of nuance because some of you are starting to have those little hairs in the back of your neck stand up because you're saying, Pastor Nick, I thought that the church, not not, not the place, not the building, not the organization, that the people of the church were supposed to be a group of people who welcomed non-Christians in so that they could get to know the Lord Jesus and what he's done in their lives. Some of you are here today and you might not be a Christian and you might hear this and you say, well, I guess I'm not welcome in this place. I thought I could come to church and learn about God even though I haven't committed myself to him yet or put my faith in Jesus. And if you're in that place, you need to hear very clearly that the message is, yes, you are indeed welcome here. That's not exactly what Paul has in mind. Yes, the church are a group of Christians who are bound together by their faith in the Lord Jesus. And yes, they welcome into their midst with high regularity people who don't know him because we believe with everything we have that the greatest gift for you in your life and for all of eternity is what God has done to reconcile you to himself through Jesus Christ. Indeed, the people who make up the church are open to those who don't know Jesus. But there is a difference between one who is meeting Christians and seeking to know God and a difference between that person and the type of person who says, I am going to stand on some different pillars of faith and actually try to persuade the rest of you to do the same. And Paul is concerned with the latter. He is concerned with the adversary within And so he gives them this command, and it's a command of purity. We might say the command in chapter 7, verse 1, is the broad command, and the command in verse 14 of chapter 6 is the specific command. Chapter 7, verse 1, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement. It's a command of purity. How do we do that? Communally, together. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers who promote a false gospel. So this is a command of purity. It's a command of purity certainly for your personal life, which is really important to pause and consider for a minute because I think that probably one of the things that many of us struggle with is the temptation to diminish the importance of purity in our personal life. And this reminds us of that reality. But beyond the call for your personal life, this is a command for purity in our corporate life together. One day, a young man was being escorted through a coal mine, and at the entrance of one of the tunnels, he spied a beautiful white flower growing out of the black earth. 
How can it blossom in such purity and radiance in this dirty mine, he asked. Throw some coal dust on it and see for yourself, his guide replied. When he did, he was surprised that the fine black particles slid right off the snowy petals, leaving the plant just as lovely as, and unstained as before. Its surface was so smooth that the grit and the grime could not adhere to it. And that's a picture in some ways of what striving for purity in the Christian life and in our corporate life looks like. In the midst of all kinds of struggle and sin and filth, to, main, to remain radiant, even in a dark place. But why? Why should we continue to strive in this way? Paul gives us the reasons for this command, and they're reasons that are rooted in your identity. He grounds this command in the reality that God calls us his temple. You know, I think one of the biggest struggles of the Christian life uh, that so many of us struggle with today is to see a clear picture of God as big enough and majestic enough. And so one of the things that I try to do, one of my roles here, is to try to continue to paint the picture of this massive, glorious God that we see in the scripture. But one of the other struggles that we often have is to see ourselves rightly in light of his magnificent glory. And here we have an opportunity to do just that because the reason for your purity and striving for purity is grounded in your identity. And the identity of the followers of Jesus here is expressed really in two different forms. Number one, it's expressed through a series of rhetorical questions. And number two, it's expressed in a couple of Old Testament promises. And so look at it with me in verse 14 and 15. We see identity revealed through rhetorical questions. I love the way that Kent Hughes breaks this down as he looks at each question. Paul asks this, he says, What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Verse 14. And Paul had already told the Christians that they when they put their faith in Jesus, become the righteousness of God. Chapter 5, verse 21 says that, that our sin is credited to Jesus and he pays for it on the cross, that his righteousness is given to us in this divine swap, that those who have faith in him would be called the righteousness of God. And what that means very functionally for you is that when God looks upon you, if you have put your faith in his son, he doesn't see the stain. That's great news. He sees his own righteousness upon you. Paul asks, what fellowship has light with darkness? But Paul has already told them in chapter 4, verse 6, that they have become light. He said this, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, the God who has said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What accord has Christ with Belial? Verse 517 tells us that when one is found in Christ, 
He is a new creation. Satan is the reference here when he refers to Belial. This is a name given to him that's an extension of a Hebrew word that means worthless or treacherous. Satan engages in treachery against God. And he tries to get all of his followers to engage in the same sort of heinous activity of treachery. But not so for us. We are in Christ. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever, Paul asks. Christians follow a long line of people who have simply believed God as he has spoken and taken God at his word. Belief is the defining mark of God's children. From Abraham to Moses to David to the prophets to the disciples of the New Testament to Christians today. Those who believe share in the inheritance that God gives. Those who do not believe do not have such a portion. And so the question becomes, do you believe? (laughs) Believe in what? (laughs) Believe what God tells us in his word. Believe that his son, Jesus, is the son of God, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a death in our place that was representative and substitutionary for us, that God reconciles the world to himself by giving grace to those who believe in his son, and he gives them eternal life. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever, he asks. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And here the identity of the the believers in Jesus is escalated all the more. He calls them the temple of God. The temple in the Old Testament is the place that God lives. (laughs) The temple is the place where sacrifices are made. The temple is the place where holiness is celebrated and worship is meant to be pure. And here, in the temple, there's no room for false gods, for errant pictures, for idols who would distort the work of Jesus Christ. And so listen, listen to the glory that is revealed in your identity that God gives to those who love him. They are called the righteousness of God. They're called light. They are called in Christ. They're called a believer. And they are called the temple. And such are you. When you believe upon the Lord Jesus, those are identity-forming realities that he's talked about just in 2 Corinthians. But beyond that, Paul points to how our identity is revealed through God's promises in the Old Testament. When you look at verses 16 through 18, you see a quotation that is a hybrid quotation from Leviticus chapter 26, 
And just for those of you that maybe aren't so familiar with biblical history, Leviticus chapter 26 is way, 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 way back there. (laughs) And Ezekiel 37, verse 27. And Ezekiel 37 is way back there. Not way, way, way back there, but just way back there. And these dual promises of Leviticus and Ezekiel are the promises of presence and the promise of adoption. And here's why this is important. Well, before that, let's, let's just remind ourselves of it. Let's read it again. God says this, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Here's why that's important. Because in the Old Testament, God made a promise to his people all the way, 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 way back there that he would never leave them nor forsake them. That he made a promise to them that they wouldn't be left alone to navigate through the darkness of the world and just try to figure it out. He would be their God. But not only that, he would not just be their mighty, powerful God who would bless them and make them a light in the world. He would not be their God from a distance. Leviticus chapter 26, he promises to Israel that my dwelling place will be with them. For God to live among them would mean that they would have access to him, that they would have the benefit of his protection, that they would experience the warmth of his love, that they would partake in the joy of being near to him, that they would not have to be afraid. They need not fear. They could have confidence and boldness knowing that the king of the universe would exercise love and justice, mercy and strength all at the right time, right in their midst. And in Ezekiel chapter 37, we see Some hundreds of years after that, these people that God has promised to dwell among them had rebelled against him again, and God had sent them off into exile to discipline them. And Ezekiel comes on the scene, and he prophesies, speaking the words of God, my dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people in heavy Silent implication, even though they don't deserve it. (laughs) And so, he points to the fact that even in the midst of their rebellion, fulfillment of this promise was forthcoming. And he was referring in the forthcoming nature of it to what we call the new covenant the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that we celebrate every year at Christmas and what that means for God reconciling the world to himself. 
So now Paul takes the promise of God in Leviticus way, 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 way back there and he takes the promise of the prophet Ezekiel way back there and he conflates them together and he says that it has been fulfilled right in the midst of the Corinthian church because Jesus has come. The promise of the presence of God and the adoption of God is applied to that church. And if it's applied to that church, it is applied to all of the gospel preaching churches, even today as this church. And this means, friends, that you, you are the ones who get to enjoy God's presence. You are the ones who benefit from his protection. You are the ones who get to partake of joy because of his nearness. You are the ones who can function with boldness and confidence knowing that the king of the universe would exercise love and justice and mercy and strength all in his right time and in his perfect way. And if that is your identity, then why would you want to be yoked to those who are working against those very promises? Why would you want to be tethered to the ones who diminish the reality of Jesus in your midst? Our identity from God compels our purity to God. That is who you are. <laughs> and that's absolutely amazing. And so what should we do? What else should we do? <laughs> we should purify ourselves. He says in verse 1 of chapter 7, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. How should we purify ourselves? Well, there's a lot of ways we can do that individually by trusting in the work of Christ and turning away from sin. How should we purify ourselves corporately? He gives one specific application. Do not be yoked with unbelievers. To be yoked does not mean to simply partner with or associate with someone. It's not a simple restriction to stay away from those non-Christians. Don't do business with people who don't agree with you. There's enough of that going on in the political realm today. That's not what Paul is talking about here. This is a prohibition from 
committing to people who actually inform your identity in an ungodly way. Who you become an ally with, who you share a common goal with, those are the people who inform your identity in a certain type of way. For example, there are levels of participation in things that do not define your identity, and there are levels of participation or joint partnership that do, in certain ways, define your priorities and even your identity. If you go to a political event for any given political party, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are in joint cooperation with the organizers. If you do business with a company, it doesn't mean that you necessarily stand for their goals. If you attend a sporting event, it doesn't mean that you agree with all of the stances of the athletes or their choices. There are ways that you can participate in things that don't define your identity. But if you become a politician and identify with the Republican Party or Democrat Party or another party, then you are almost certainly yoked in certain ways with that group of people as you mutually work together toward a platform of ideas. If you are an executive of a company, not just a worker in a company, but an executive of a company who shapes vision and values and direction, then you are almost certainly yoked together by function. And an aspect of your identity is tied with the goals of that company. If you are a member of a club or an organization, your membership implies your agreement with the goals of that club or organization. And here, Paul says, be careful. Don't be yoked with those who have goals that undermine the core of who you are, your identity in the Lord Jesus. How does this relate to the question of marriage? Single people, young people, listen up. Because we said a minute ago, this, the primary application of this text is probably not with regard to marriage, but a secondary application is almost certainly here, right? Hear this. Marriage is hard. <laughs> Even when you're going in the same direction, it's hard. In the last service, I got one person that shouted a really loud amen about that. <laughs> it's particularly hard for some of us when you have the same goals and your marriage relationship is going to shape your identity more than any other relationship in your life. And so if you claim to be a follower of the Lord Jesus and you say, God, I want to follow you with all of my days and I want to live a life where you are continuing to change me and inform who I am and who I'm becoming. I want to grow in faithfulness to you. I want to grow in purity to you as I go from this day until the day of my death. And you marry somebody, you become yoked with somebody, you partner with somebody who has goals that are in a completely opposite direction, 
then how can you possibly continue with the same sort of goals or vision in your life without constant strife or tension or conflict? Your priorities, your family, your relationship, your very identity as it relates to God. And if that's true, then Paul's words certainly apply here. Don't be unequally yoked. But what about the church? We can talk about the individual application and the relational application, but what does this mean for our corporate application? What does it mean for this church? It means this, that a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church should take great care when it comes to her members. It means that the church, and I don't mean the building, I don't mean the organization, whatever that is, I mean you, you people, us together, we're the church, that the church must never accept those who take the deep and profound work of Jesus on the cross and cheapen it due to cultural trends. It means that the church must be on guard against the trend to moralize or liberalize the view of the atonement, which is what Jesus accomplishes in death and burial and resurrection for your benefit. It means that the church must simultaneously train up sound teachers and guard access to those who teach lest false doctrine creep in, invasive species of belief. It's always baffling to me when somebody says, I don't know what my church family believes or I don't care that much about the details. (laughs) The details are really important. And it means that the leaders of a church and its members must be vigilant, all of us, about A temptation that is really common today. A temptation to normalize sinful behavior and to think and act like purity is abnormal or even a bizarre goal. (laughs) And it means that God's love for us, informing us into a particular people, drives our purity for him. Our identity from God compels our purity for God. Leonard Ravenhill once said that the greatest miracle that God can do today is to take an unholy man out of an unholy world, make that man holy, put him back in an unholy world, and then keep him holy in it. And that's what God does to each and every one of you who put your faith In Jesus Christ, our identity from God compels our purity for God. In the forest of northern Europe and Asia lives a little animal called an ermine. I wonder if you've ever seen one. An ermine is best known for its snow-white fur. And instinctively, this small creature takes a peculiar pride in its glossy coat. He protects it at all cost against anything that would soil it. Fur hunters take 
advantage of the ermine and his peculiarity in this respect. They do not set a snare for the animal, but instead they seek and find his home, which is often in the cleft of a rock or the hollow of an old tree. And when they find it, they dab the entrance and the inside of the home with filth. Then their dogs give chase, and frightened, the ermine flees toward his home. He finds it covered within and without with uncleanliness, and so rather than soil his white coat, he turns and he faces the yelping dog and meets his death while preserving his purity. (laughs) To the ermine, purity is dearer than life. I wonder if the same is true for you. The church must always be on guard in this area of purity because times are growing darker, friends. Temptation to abandon purity will come and sadly many churches have already abandoned it. Pressure, reputation, Ridicule will be at stake, even in this community of ours. In other parts of the world, persecution and death are the cost of purity. Invasive species of false doctrine are ever waiting to make their way in. But we must never tether ourselves to it or to those who teach it. Because our identity from God compels our purity for God. That's who you are. (laughs) That's who you are. And we thank God for it. Let's pray. Lord, you are so kind to give us such an incredible identity. Help us today to revel in it all the more that we would enjoy your presence because you dwell among us and have adopted us as your sons and daughters. God, we thank you. We pray for help, for courage, for resolve, for endurance in the work of purity. Protect our church, we pray, in the big things and in the little things. Continue to give us a resolve to please you in everything we do. For the sake of your glory, we ask. Amen.